He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Graham Norton, the TV host, the writer, comedian, winemaker, he's had uh, quite a few chats with Kim over the years and you can hear why. They're both very quick, coarse, very witty and with just the right amount of devilish. This interview, it's one of the most popular Kim did in 2020, uh, and it's to talk about Norton's newest novel, Homestretch. And it goes to some really interesting places, I think. You know, feelings around uh, sexuality and, and protagonists, um, the sense of belonging, the concept of home, and uh, all, as with so many interviews from this period, with the spectre of the pandemic looming large in the, well, not even in the background, in the foreground, really. It's a great interview. Really hope you enjoy it. Graham Norton is, of course, the host of the eponymous BBC chat show and one of the UK's best-loved figures. His first break was back in Father Ted. He's won nine BAFTAs for Best Entertainment Performance and Best Entertainment Programme, and he's also an author, two memoirs, and well-received novels. He's now written his third novel, again set in rural Ireland, as well as, briefly, Liverpool, London and New York, as the survivor of a fatal car crash flees the condemnation of his hometown. He's also gay, another reason not to go back to homophobic Ireland of the 1980s. The book is called Home Stretch. Good book, well done, I said. Oh, thank you, that's really kind of you, thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, it's weird to have it out in the world. Well, no weirder than the last two, I imagine, is it? Um, it's always, it, it's an odd thing. You would think that it would get easier or you'd relax more or something, but it's just, it, it becomes equally stressful every time. I think it's because you, you have to, you can't pretend you don't care. You know, with a, a radio show or a TV show, you've got to go, nah, it wasn't very good, another one next week. Uh, but a book, you know, clearly you <laughs> you spent a lot of time doing it. So you've got to, you've got to, you know, you you can't just shrug it off if everyone hates it. Now, where are you? You back in London now? Yeah, back in London. Came back um, a couple of weeks ago, I think, and uh, we're back in the studio. We've cobbled together a sort of chat show, and uh, it's quite nice to be back in London. I went to the theatre last night. What did you see? We went to see you know those Alan Bennett talking heads, you know those plays that Alan yep, Bennett yep. did. Yeah, so the, he, um, I think he's given the the rights to the plays to this particular theatre. And uh, I saw Imelda Staunton last night doing uh, Lady of Letters. And it was great. And what they cleverly did in the theatre was, you know, because I don't have you been to anything? Have you been to, or maybe it's different in New Zealand. Are you allowed to go to things in New Zealand? We are now. And so is it normal? Like could, if you go to the cinema or the theatre, is it just people sitting beside each other in rows? Yeah, there's still a bit of personal distancing involved and we are encouraged to wear masks and that kind of thing, but we're pretty much down to normal-ish now. Oh, wow. I know. Um, it is incredible. Uh, it is incredible because here, you know, there's massive social distancing going on, but in this theatre, they removed all the seats that weren't being used. Oh, so, so it looked lovely. It just looked like we were all just sat around rather casually watching a, a show, rather because I've been at other things where it just looks a bit sad because there's so many empty seats. How but did you? Was... We will, 
We will talk about the novel, of course, but how did you feel about doing your show on Skype and Zoom? Look, that was really depressing, uh, <laughs> I thought. But, um, <laughs> depressing. But it was It was reason... hard. Yeah, you don't yeah, get the yeah. energy, right? No, you don't. And the main reason we did it was because the BBC said, look, we're, we've got an appetite for doing this. And uh, so we were like, OK, let's do it because we, you know, we employ a lot of people on short term contracts and they all thought they were going to start work kind of at the end of March. So, uh, you know, they'd have been high and dry if if we just pulled the plug. So we were able to keep going and we employed all the producers and researchers and people. And now we're back in the studio. So now we've got camera guys, lighting guys, sound guys, art department, all of those people are back in, in work as well. So and all, it's, and it's just fun. It's, you know, going to work is you just it's a social thing going to work. I think uh, it's just quite nice to, you know chat and get people's stories and gossip and stuff uh, rather than no, sitting in my back bedroom talking no to a laptop. sofa though no sofa now you've got i saw the new series and you've got social distancing going on far far away we, from each other that must change the dynamics I mean, it does i feel we maybe overdid our social distancing um i could have hardly thrown a ball at the people on, on well we've heard about chairs. your ball skills anyway <laughs> That well, those are really poor. My ball, <laughs> that's that's my greatest regret. Um, but really? anyway, I think this is, this is no, seriously, growing as a if I could throw a ball, I think my life would be very different than it is now. Yeah, maybe you it, would have been it, a success. Damn it, I, I know, as a ball player. <laughs> but Dolly Parton, would you have got Dolly Parton on the show? Because you talked to her via Zoom on that first episode. I mean, you know, you get more access by Zoom because people don't have to to schlep over to London, right? You do, and I wonder if things will kind of shift this way because once you've said we will talk to you on Zoom and you've put it on telly and Dolly's book sales and CD sales have gone up, well, then it's very hard to shut that door and kind of go... No, now we want you here because you know it's so expensive to 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 for that publicity machine to kick into gear and to get film stars and big pop stars around. If they're not performing, if they're not doing tours and things, um, why would they leave the house? Why would any of us leave the house, really? So um, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens in a post-COVID world, if there is ever a post-COVID world. Um, but if there's a kind of, you know, some sort of halfway housey world, I wonder what will happen on the whole promo circuit, whether we will just continually talk to, to laptops. I mean, we get the, the local uh, the local celebs, we hit them with a stick and they have to come into the studio. Uh, we make them do that. But, uh, but the big stars, I wonder, I wonder if they'll just stay in their houses. It's interesting that you describe it as a kind of a promo circuit, because obviously that's what your show is. But it's... More than that, because they all have such fabulous, mostly. I mean, you get the odd dud, right? But mostly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who are you thinking of? No, no, no names. <laughs> no, I, 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 the duds, I'm always quite, uh, I think the team get really annoyed when there's a dud because bless the, the researchers and the producers who are responsible for each guest, you know, they're like their cheerleaders and they like send them into bat and they're kind of like, yeah, no, no, they're good. They're really good on the phone. And no, they've got some great stories. No, they're really good. And then, you know, they're terrible. And 
And I kind of think, well, it's nobody's job. It's nobody's job to be a good chat show guest. Everyone's a successful something else. They're, you know, actors, musicians, models, writers, whatever they are. It, 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 no one's passport to say chat show guest. So if they're bad at that, I kind of think, oh, well, fair enough. You know, it's, it is, it, it's sort of surprising that as many people are good at it as are good at it, you know, particularly young kids and stuff. It's amazing they're able to come on and tell stories and be funny. I'm thinking of Robert De Niro. Well, see, he's a good case in point. So if he's by himself, if he's just there, if it's just, if it's just Graham and Robert, that's going to be quite an uncomfortable watch. That's going to be quite difficult because, you know, he's not a raconteur. He's, <laughs> he, he really isn't. Um, but when you, what you see on our show is that that's not coming from a kind of a bad place or a negative place. He's actually a very benign presence and he's quite a good audience member. He likes listening to the other stories and he likes hearing funny stories and he'll laugh and, you know, he'll he's curious about other people in that way that actors are. He just doesn't have his his wanting to show off gene is strangely muted for an actor. So he he and I also I suppose he spent so much of his life um, trying not to reveal who he is so that he can inhabit all these other characters. And and it's only really in the last couple of 10 years where I guess, you know, his his star power is different. So now he is contractually obliged to go on that that chat show circuit and you know and it doesn't suit him but our, i think on our show you see that actually he's a nice man he's not being he's not being deliberately sort of perverse no not by at all. not telling stories he's, he's no, you know he's smiley he's yeah smiley. he's smiley um you somebody said maybe it was you on that first episode there's a <laughs> vortex of need for performance that that you know has not been uh, satisfied during the COVID pandemic. Did you suffer from that? That need to perform? And not so much, really. I I think I've discovered over the years uh, my vortex of need isn't quite as deep as some people's. Um, and also I, I have other things. And I was able to do the, my radio show uh, here in Britain. I was able to do that. Uh, I was finishing the book. So, you know, that, that, so I had different outlets in a way. Um, that, you are so busy. How do you fit all this in? How do you fit all this in? People ask me that and I don't, I don't quite understand it. Um, I don't feel like a very busy person. I feel like there are many days when I just stare at a wall and think, oh, I ought to be doing that now, but I'm not. But somehow I do get it all done. And, you know, given that I was the kid who never had homework in, never you know, was prepared for an exam, um, oddly with the books, I have a deadline and I hit it. And, you know, I've written, what is it, five, I think five, you know, two memoirs and three novels now. And boom, deadline, there you go, uh, book done. And I don't know when I became that person. I don't know how that happened. It's, it, I, I don't recognise myself in that moment. Homestretch, then your latest novel, is, um, it's been described as a love letter to Ireland. And it's also got your first explicitly gay 
protagonist, I think, and you've described it as your most personal book. Is that what you mean? Kind of. I think, you know, listen, if a book works at all, it's because it somehow reflects things in you. You know, if, if emotions are genuine, if situations seem plausible and true, then it is, it's got to come out of your head and your experience. But I think this is the one where it's most overt, that if you want to go looking for little bits of autobiography, you can find them in here. Um, and, and it's interesting that thing people have picked up on, the, you know, a love letter to Ireland that's very nice about Ireland. And that was kind of an accident. I didn't intend that to happen. Um, I was just telling the story of these characters and one of the main protagonists, Connor, um, he leaves Ireland after this terrible car crash where he kills people and he has to flee. And uh, and he, it starts in 87 and it goes right up to 2019. And so the arc of his story is that as a man in his late 40s, early 50s, he is coming back to Ireland. And in my head, the arc of that story was him being reunited with his family and seeing his sister again and all those things. But of course, then I realized, oh, no, he's not just meeting them. He's meeting a new Ireland. He's meeting a country that is so different than the one he left. And and that's my experience when I go back. You know, I left in 83, 84, and I never thought I'd go back. And now I'm desperate to spend more time there. You know, this year I spent about four months there and I love it. And an Ireland, I think, is in a really kind of sweet spot right now where young people still don't take modern Ireland for granted. They still appreciate the country they're living in. I mean, you know, and that can't go on. They will end up forgetting that it was any ever different, uh, ever any different. Um, but for now, it's it's lovely. You talk to young people and they're so proud of the country that they've kind of made fit for purpose for themselves it's I, I i find it really kind of moving did you flee like connor fled i mean obviously not for the same reasons but did you feel like you were escaping <laughs> uh, yes i mean it's Escaping is kind of the wrong. It wasn't so much I was escaping, but I I'd spotted uh, a door that opened onto a big bright world, and that so I was going into something rather than getting out of something. Uh, you know, I I, I just being nineteen twenty in rural Ireland. You know, I watched TV, I went to the movies, I read, and it seemed like the rest of the world was where everything was happening. That's where you needed to be. You know, I wasn't uh, the Hamilton thing, you know, the room where it happened. I was not in the room where anything was happening. Uh, so you you wanted to, to get into that room. And London is the easiest place for someone from uh, Ireland to get to, you know, same language, you, know, you know, you don't need to do anything. You just get on a bus and a boat and then you're in London and you probably know people here. I did. And so you have an inn and it's, it's sort of not that hard to build a new life here. And did you have a clean slate like Connor did? I mean, there's a piece in the book where, he arrives in London and it's just liberating. No one cared about his past because everybody was trying to redefine themselves. And they wore clothes they'd never wear in the towns they came from and ate food their mothers would never cook. And that that is certainly that, you know, that was my experience. I found a tribe of people and we were we were discovering who we were and we were anonymous. And 
And I think that was the thing that in the end I couldn't bear about Ireland was that there was no anonymity. You know, even in Cork, I mean, I never did Dublin. I'm sure you could be anonymous in Dublin, but even in Cork, you felt like you couldn't be. And coming to London was amazing that nobody knew who you were. And then perversely, I have done this weird thing <laughs> with my life. So I I got rid of that anonymity. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> but given that, you know, I, I deliberately didn't want it. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why I like going back to Ireland now, because in Ireland, you know, I go back to a little town called Bantry and I'm still, you know, I'm known there. But I also know them, that that's the lady who works behind the till in the supermarket. That's the guy from the butchers. That's, you know, the guy who came to fix the boiler. And so my job's slightly more exotic, but but everyone's a bit famous in Bantry. Whereas in London now, it's weird because I walk down Oxford Street and I don't know who anybody is, but they do know who I am. It's it's That's kind of a bit of a mind mess. In your acknowledgements to Home Stretch. You thank all the people who stayed in Ireland to fight for what you call the modern tolerant country it's become. You took the easy way out and left to find places where I could be myself. Do you feel genuine guilt about that? I think guilt is too strong a word. I don't feel guilt, really. I'm, you know, I made the choices I made and they were easier choices. Um... But I am very grateful and very sort of humbled by the people who had the courage and the tenacity to be visible at a time when it often probably wasn't very easy to be visible. And they did all the, you know, the drudgery, the donkey work, the going on the marches, doing petitions, lobbying parliament. They did all that stuff. And, you know, I now go back and reap reap the rewards and I, I i will never get to meet a lot of those people i won't i don't know their names um but i felt it was important that i acknowledge them in the book i didn't want to be like you know one of those young gay people who don't kind of get it they don't get that actually this didn't just happen you know a politician didn't just decide to bring in a new law it's because you know people chipped away at society for all those years and that wasn't easy and in a way there's no you know uh, you, uh, probably a lot of the people were almost too old or maybe died they you know they weren't around to reap the benefits but they put all the work in and i felt i owed it to them to kind of have them in the book and to to acknowledge their existence in the book and again there's that scene where connor's nephew finbar uh, this is in 2015 he's at an exhibition in dublin celebrating gay history and gay activism. I mean, it all seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? Well, like the, I think, I mean, look, I'm old, but at the same time, in terms of history, what's happened in my lifetime seems like an express train. Uh, it's amazing what's happened in, in that length of time. And I think probably it's to do with, you know, Ireland had been left behind. Ireland was, you know, Ireland didn't really have the 60s in the way that a lot of Western countries did. And so I think come kind of the end of the 80s into the 90s, suddenly uh, something kicked in. And I think one of the things that kicked in was, you know, for all sorts of dark, terrible reasons, the church lost its grip on Ireland. And so suddenly... Uh, 
people almost made decisions based on what was the church telling them to do? Okay, we won't do that. And I think, you know, in lots of ways, the the gay marriage referendum, it it was less a pro uh, pro gay marriage than an anti Catholic church thing, where you know the the, the Catholic church said, don't let them get married, and people went right. <laughs> that is what we're going to do. We're going to let them get married, uh, and and that's a sort of a, a sort of accident of history. You couldn't have seen all that darkness. Uh, coming now, we know uh, the kind of horrible history that that went on. You know, people were unaware. Um, certainly, when I was growing up, people didn't know that was happening. No, I mean all those secrets and lies that were imposed by the Catholic Church, but also enabled the Catholic Church. It's a complicated story, isn't it? It really is, um, because you know they. It, you're not a Catholic. So one, you want to declare yourself as as a non-Catholic. No, no, I'm not you're, a Catholic. You were raised a as a Protestant. Protestant. Yeah, which I is was, an I'm unusual situation in in Ireland, of course. It is, and 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 you're made to feel kind of less Irish because you're a Protestant. You know, people yeah. would, would write. I remember when I was a kid, people would write into the radio and they would sign their letters. You know, a good Irish Catholic. And it seemed like those words all went together. You couldn't be a good Irish person unless you were Catholic. And you weren't really a good Catholic unless you were an Irish Catholic. Um, Those things were all so tied together. And so it's extraordinary now that that's all kind of fallen apart and so fast. Um, Like I say, the, the speed of change has been astonishing. I'm talking to Graham Norton, in case anybody doesn't recognise his voice, which is not likely, I have to say. Um, You being you uh, probably did as much as anybody who stayed in Ireland to change Ireland. I mean, you used to be much camper, right? And there you were. You had a high profile. You used your voice. People loved you. And you were obviously gay. I mean, that had to make a difference to people's views, right? I mean, I don't know. I never felt like I was a spokesperson or a campaigner. No, no, but I know I su- you didn't. But, but in fact, but I, I guess my, but, but, by, but I suppose what I'm talking about, those people in Ireland being visible, I was visible. And that's got to be a good thing. Um, that, and that, that in the end, I think what was good was that my show Although I was very camp and gay, it was it became a mainstream show. It it didn't it wasn't niche. It wasn't for uh, it wasn't just to be enjoyed by a gay audience. Um, it was meant to be enjoyed by everybody. And, and certainly, you know, I've talked to uh, you know young gay guys, and and they've talked about how my show started a conversation in their house. Now, whether it was good or bad, that's a really difficult conversation to start. So if if it helped in that way, um, that's good, uh, I guess. Um, but it was never it was never my intention. I suppose I was lucky in that I went into show business being gay. I always got I do. I I I. I understand how people end up in that situation of they, you know, you don't say anything and then suddenly you're really successful. You're doing really well. And you're kind of thinking, oh, is it a bit late to say something now? Um, <laughs> so I think that show business coming out thing, that's such a hard thing to 
to kind of navigate. I don't know how you do that. So I was very lucky in the, you know, I just, I just minced into it and I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have to make that decision at any time. Uh, we always think of the Irish, you know, they, they, they talk, everything's out there, which is inconsistent with the kind of secrets and lies we've been talking about under the yoke of the church. But there's this terrible scene in the novel where the mother of one of those killed in the car crash loses it at the funeral um, and just crumbles under the grief of it and makes makes an exhibition of herself. And there's, there's generalised kind of disapproval of somebody who would do that. And that seems to me to be shocking. Is that likely? Is that something you think would happen to her, that she'd be judged for losing it under those circumstances? I think in in those circumstances, there'd be sort of an embarrassment, a kind of a general embarrassment, because Ireland is very good at death. Ireland do funerals brilliantly. Um, and it's one of the things where I kind of began to fall back in love with Ireland was when my father died, was seeing how well that small town dealt with his death and our grief and our, 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 our grief as a family. It was, I, I, I was sort of blown away by it. And I was, I felt so stupid that, that as a young person, I hadn't appreciated that. And it took, it, it took it happening to me to see how just gorgeous it was, how, how lovely it was. Um, but equally, I think there is a kind of an, an embarrassment about, uh, uh too much emotion you know you're allowed to cry but don't get hysterical um people don't want that um so i think i think that that could happen um in those circumstances and also because she had no family around her so there's a kind of a sense of well there she it it demanded an intimacy somebody needed to go and comfort her but no one was really sure whose job that was um because normally i think there's a kind of a like i say they do it very well so it's kind of choreographed and everyone has their role to play and in that particular funeral people were a bit you know uh, wrong-footed by it they didn't they didn't know what to do when it's just a single mother uh who's in that situation the uh, the town of Mullinmore is the fictional site for much of the story. Do you go back to Ireland and people say, yes, we recognise that place and that must be that individual and were you thinking of me when you wrote that person? They do, and I'm so careful that I do base the, the, the locations in the novel. Normally I kind of have a place or a, 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 I'm looking at scenery and I'm kind of imagining that's what they're looking at. Da, 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 da. But I'm very careful about that no one in the book is recognisable, that you don't know who anybody is. And then uh, in the first, in my first book, Holding, it's set in a little village called Donin, and uh, and that was based loosely based on a little village called Durris. And there are these uh, three Ross sisters in the book. And I was doing interviews saying, oh, it's not based on anybody, not based on anybody. And then when uh, they're kind of developing that book to be a a TV series. And when they went back to kind of do their research and work on the script and afterwards, they rang me and said, Graham, do you know that there are three Ross sisters who live in Durris? I'm like, no, I didn't know that. So they must have been they must have been listening to me doing interviews going, no, it's not based anyone thinking, what are you talking about? We are the Ross sisters. 
<laughs> we live in this village. But uh, <laughs> so it was accidental. Unless, you know, I just heard uh, that name and it was just subliminally in my head. I don't yep. know. I'm sure. What do you do with your dogs when you're in London? They're dead. Oh, God. No, seriously? <laughs> no, no, they are dead. Oh, no. God, I'm so <laughs> no, no, sorry. I'm, no, 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 I'm being horrible. Why would I do that to you? That That's is a, a terrible thing. thing to say to you. A horrible drive, but they are dead. Uh, one died. <gasps> one died at Christmas. One died at Christmas, and one died in July. But they were I'm both sorry. very old. I no, know, no, no. but I, you'll be so I, sad. Now I feel bad. Now I feel bad. <laughs> Stop it. I, I was over but, but no, they are. Now you think I'm lying, but they are dead. No, um, no, no. I don't um, think you'd lie about very, something like that. It was a good were, line, though, for they, a moment, wasn't it? It was a line that you would yeah. use on your show. But they, they were very old and we got them back to Ireland and that was lovely. Um, you know, Bailey, the Labradoodle, he went in, in July and he was uh, 15. And, you know, his last day on earth, he had a big breakfast and then he was down in the stream, drinking out of the stream at the bottom of the garden. And and then after lunch, he kind of had this big seizure and the, that was the end of him. But uh, so, it, he, you know, he hadn't been, he was an old dog, so he wasn't very mobile. And I knew the end was coming, but it's still, oh, when it happens, it is grim. I feel like I spent a lot of the year in, in car park sobbing. <laughs> what about the other one? Little Madge, she, um, it turned out she's a rescue dog and it turned out she was much older than I thought she was. Oh, she'd been and lying about her age all that time. She had. And uh, I think in the end, it was her hair <laughs> gave her away. She <laughs> <It> was quite <laughs> bald. I end. know what she means. <laughs> And uh, poor little thing. Uh, so I, I and that was again nice because it was Christmas and my family were all around and we knew that it was the end that she was going to go. And the night before, I kind of took her to the vets. It was like a little wake. We sat around and everyone told their stories about Madge because she was a vile dog. She was really, <laughs> <laughs> she was really mean. Oh. Uh, but we adored her, and everyone just told their their favorite Madge stories. And it, it was, but like I say. Well, I don't know if you've been through it, but it's just, you know, it's it's oh. so grim. And yet, and yet, it is a lovely thing you get to do. It is like this final gift you give your dog that you're you're not going to make them go through the absolute worst of it. You're going to, you are giving them a shortcut out. And and as upsetting it is, it I don't know, I felt it was sort of beautiful and kind of a privilege that you were able to do that. And, and God, on vets, I mean, I just came away with such a, an admiration for vets. They handle those situations so well. I don't know how they do it. It's just, they were amazing, all of them. We are um, coming up to an election where we have to vote on whether we would have voluntary euthanasia in this country. And I feel like you've just promoted it in some peculiar oh, way. Oh, no. Is this illegal? Am I not supposed to? No, um, no, no, no. I'm just wondering whether people will listen to you and go, yeah, that's right. It should be a beautiful thing under the right circumstances and all that. Under the right how circumstances. Do you, how do you feel it's about that, extending it to people? How would you feel about that? Well, I feel that there will come a time in the future where Dignitas will be like Starbucks. Um, you know, <laughs> because, and I think what's going to happen is that people are going to backward plan. You know, they're going to say, okay, I've got this much money left. Yeah. And, um, you know, because pensions are going to go out, you know, all, I feel like 
all these things. There was a little window there where people were able to have a nice old age. And I feel like that is vanishing somewhere along the line. And also we're not allowed to get old. You know, everyone, you've got to keep young. So I think there'll come a point where we're just back. We, we do backward estate planning where we kind of think I can afford to live for another 20 years and I'll make my appointment and uh, say bye bye. Um, I, you, I don't know. Are you endorsing this or are you looking at it with a mixture of, of panic? What is it? Um, I don't I don't know how you I, mean, I think, you know, it's such a complicated uh, issue. I can't believe you got onto the subject, <laughs> particularly particularly when you are actually about to vote on this. I know. Um, Choose your uh, words so, very, very carefully. Yeah, no, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I haven't thought about it uh, that much, but my gut instinct would be that it should be an option. And I think it used to be an option. I think before, I'm sure an awful lot of people were helped on their way in a kind of humane way by by doctors and things. And then as you know, everything became more regulated, you couldn't do that. You couldn't kind of go, oh, have a bit more morphine. Why don't you? It'll you'll be more comfortable. Um, so I think that I think probably there was a kind of a, a grassroots or kind of local way of, of humanely helping people uh, get get to the other side or just get out of whatever particular physical hell they're in. Um, so I, which I, yes, of course is as got... open, is as open to abuse as, as legislation. I mean, people will always do bad things. And they will, but you know, that's, that's murder. Uh, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that will still be illegal. Um, you know, I think it, it, I think you can kind of overthink it. Of of course, there'll be ways of abusing it and there'll be ways of, um, you know, doing bad things because there will always be bad people who want a shortcut to a will or they want the house or whatever. But, you know, they're not bringing in the legislation to help those people. They're bringing in the legislation to be, help kind of kind, humane people. And they may not be bringing in the legislation. So shut up, Graham. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. We will see. The end of your book... Um, is, let's not spoil it, it's about forgiveness. Is that wishful? Or do you genuinely think that that's... Are there people you cannot forgive? Um, I hope there aren't. No, I but hope... you know. I mean, hope, schmoke. Yeah, no, no. Are well, I, well, actually, no. I, actually, I think in my life, in my own life, I have forgiven anyone who I who I really really was angry with or had a problem with now I may not have told them I may not have had that you know the moment where you sit down because in a way it's not about them it's about me and it's about me letting go um so I can I, hear dogs yeah, no, Sorry I, now to interrupt. I knew, I knew, no, no, I knew you heard the dog. And you were thinking, oh, now Kim will think I'm... <laughs> he lied to <laughs> me. Or you've immediately gone out and got replacement dogs, which I think no, is a little silly. No, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't. I, I, someone took pity on me. So I'm, um, I'm dog-sitting a friend's dog at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> he told me this whole sob story about his dogs. Oh, yeah. And it turned out... <laughs> no, sorry, we were talking about forgiveness. 
So you haven't sat yes. down and had the conversation with the people that you Yeah, because I think forgiveness forgiven. is an it, forgiveness is a personal thing. Because actually, if you for me, I don't care whether they know that I've forgiven them or not. It's about me. I'm not I'm not I'm not stuck in that mindset. I'm not stuck in that place. I've I've let it go and I can I can move on. And I think forgiveness is so powerful uh in the way that it can liberate you you know when you watch those true crime documentaries and things and you see the the relatives of of victims uh you know mothers and siblings and you see the ones who have never been able to forgive the ones who just cannot let go and then you watch the ones who have made some sort of peace with what happened. I don't know how you do that, but they have. And you watch the documentary, you think, well, the only one to be is the one who's made peace with it, because they're the only ones who can fashion some sort of life and some sort of happiness post this awful, awful thing. Whereas you watch the ones who cannot get past it and it's it's a double tragedy because yeah. now they're stuck in it forever as well. For those of us who haven't experienced awful, awful things, but nevertheless still have a list of people that they find it very, very difficult to forgive, I'm just imagining it's best to keep it to yourself if you forgive them because half the time you go, I forgive you, and they go, what do you mean, forgive me? And it would all start up again. Yeah, and also you don't want to. I don't want to give them the satisfaction, which suggests I <laughs> which but, suggests uh, that you haven't actually. Maybe the forgiveness, maybe the forgiveness is the wrong word. Uh, 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 uh. Um, I don't even know whether you've been to New Zealand. Have you? I never have. Well, what is I all this never. business about this love affair you're having with New Zealand then? Well, I think now, oddly, in my in my post dog world, um, of course, it would be very easy to come to New Zealand. But sadly, post dog world has coincided with a global pandemic, uh, which means I won't be going anywhere uh, very soon. That was because in my head, I always thought, oh, when the dogs die, I'm just going to I'm just going to travel. You know, without the dogs, I could suddenly the world is open. I can go wherever I like. And of course, you know, my dogs have timed it so. <laughs> So that I am uh, just sat in my house the same as I always was. But uh, but uh, but that was my plan. My plan is to um, uh, see a bit more of the world now that I, I don't have uh, my furry friends. But how did New Zealand secure a place in your heart? At wine, 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 wine. Um, love, love a New Zealand uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and I must have said it in, you know, some interview. And uh, these two young guys who just started a, a new winery in Vivo Wines, they got in touch and said, "Oh, would you like some um, white wine for your green room?" And you know, you're never too old or too rich for a free drink. So uh, it's like, yes, please, we'd love that. And that started a relationship with the boys. And then they said, oh, would you like to make your own wine? And now I kind of a blend of Sauvignon Blanc with them every year. And we've also got a Shiraz, a Rosé, a Prosecco. Um, and then we also, um, with them, we make this gin in Skibbereen in West Cork. So it's a nice kind of Irish, New Zealand thing, uh, like kind of booze brand. But, um, Is that I, how it I, started? 
I always thought that you had expressed affection for New Zealand and that was what prompted them to approach you with the wine. No, well, it was what I mean, basically, I was, you know, I, I, I was keeping your economy afloat um, uh, so <laughs> with, with my wine consumption. So uh, I was guzzling that down. And then that I'm like I say, I must have said it. And then that's when they approached me. Um, but it's been really I'm, I really like working with them. You know, they're so like, yeah, they're so on it. You know, these well, they're not as young now as they were. But, you know, when I met them, they were two young guys and they just yeah, they had a vision of how they could build their brand. And they've done a great job. And they've now got Sarah Jessica Parker involved as well. And um, and yeah, and they've got their own in vivo wines as well. So it's it's yeah, it's, it, they've done a great job. Um, one of those questions coming up. Is there anybody that you desperately want on your show that you have never managed to secure? Um. I mean, there's some odd ones that we've never had on. Um, we've never had Julia Roberts, unless we have. But I don't think we have. Oh, uh, you can't forget Julia you Roberts, think, surely. Well, you've got to think over the years, you know, she would have come on. You know, all those people who've never been on, suddenly the booker goes, you'll never guess who's coming on. Uh, you know, we're finally going to have George Clooney. Wow, there's George Clooney. And um, so uh, Julia Roberts, we've never had her. Uh, we've never had Brad Pitt. I don't know. We've never had Brad Pitt or Angelina. Um, they're they're separate bookings now. Yes. Um, and then, you know, there's a kind of a, a tabloid interest in Britain in the young royals. So I'm aware that having, you know, any of those young royals on would be a very good for the show, very good for bookings. But, you know, I'm personally, I, you know, I, I'm not that desperate to, to talk to them. Um, but Megan but and Harry would be up to it now they're, you know, fully blown celebrities rather than royals having decoupled well, well, they might zo- They might zoom in. They might zoom in. I don't think, I don't think they're leaving California anytime soon. Um, there's been, there's been little, there's been little to tempt them back to Britain. Rupert Everett on your last programme, your first programme, your last programme. I think it was Rupert Everett. Who, did he really have young blood injected into his face or whatever it was? Um, well, now, he's so open in his books and he's never talked about that. So I no. assume he didn't. Do you remember? Because it was that, I thought it was, was it lamb embryo or something he had. Yes. Been, that's what I read. That's what I read. Uh, but something. presumably, it was. what I find so extraordinary is when I read something about myself in the newspaper, it is always either completely wrong or a bit wrong or spinned wrong or skew, you know there's always something wrong with it is never a hundred percent factually correct no. and yet i will turn the page of that newspaper and then go "Ooh, i didn't know that about them <laughs> yeah <laughs> i will believe everything else yes as if it's gospel yes I'm like, what sort of weird i mean it's weird that they, they you know i'm in the paper and i know it's not true and yet i'm suckered into believing all the rest of it it's weird i know it's a tiny part of your brain that wishes to suspend disbelief, which is why we have President Trump, after all, is it not? Oh, I don't know why we have him. I feel like we did something bad in a former life. but um, The whole world has to own him, right? It's not just an American problem. It's a problem for everyone. Yes, and they say it started with Brexit. I don't know. I mean, I suppose, I don't know. I, I, 
uh, one of the things I've done during this whole kind of pandemic is stop really engaging with news. I'm just sort of, you know, I'm washing my hands, I'm wearing a mask, and I'm keeping distance. And that was that's that's it. That's that's my engagement with news. I have I don't think I've actually sat down and watched the news in about six months. I just kept out of it. That must be quite a nice holiday for you. It's lovely. It's yes. very nice um, to not kind of engage with it too much. And also because it's a bit like a soap opera in that, you know, you, if you watch a soap opera every day, it's like things are happening. But actually, if you don't watch a soap opera for six months and you come back, it's like nothing's happened. Everything's sort of the same. I mean, maybe one of the characters lives in a new house now or <laughs> they're going out with someone else. But really, not much has happened in the soap opera. And that's what I feel like about politics, that, you know, it, day to day, it seems like all this crazy stuff is going on. But actually, the, the big story arc is hellishly slow. Uh, so roll on November. Um, why I mentioned Rupert Everett was that he said to you that uh -oh. he believed tenacity was more important than luck. And so I want to know whether you think in your life that has been true. I mean, it's, was it, I think it might be Joan Collins who said something about, it, you know, it's incredible um, how lucky hardworking people are. Um, and I think he's right i think if if you don't give up if you if you hang around if you just stick around there's a much greater chance that something will happen for you um and i always you know i look back at my own life when i was doing memoirs you know i look at all these years of really nothing no one really encouraging me no one saying hang on in there graham and i always think you know if i'd been my good friend I would have told me, look, just pack that in. You know, you're you're going to you know you're going to be thirty any second now. You need to have a plan B. You need to think again. But no one said it to me, and I didn't think again. And there was no plan B. I'm not advocating that. I don't think that's. I don't. You know, if I was talking at a school, I would not be saying, "Hey, kids." <laughs> Don't worry about plan B. Um, I think actually have a plan B, have a plan C. Uh, just I didn't and it worked out. But there's no guarantee that there's no guarantee that tenacity and having no nothing to fall back on will get you there in the end. Um, because, you know, I know people who didn't get there in the end. And yeah, it's all bad. Graham Norton. His new novel is called Homestretch.